in our last episode. Summer and fall of 1926 saw several attacks and murders in quick succession between the Berger and Shelton gangs. The Shelton's attack on their former friend Art Newman and his wife Bessie caused Newman to reconsider his allegiances. <laughs> Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 17, Part 2 Following their attempt on the Newmans, the truck returned to Marion, then turned north toward Johnston City. North of town, the Shelton searched Lester Thetford's roadhouse, then drove to the county line roadhouse between Johnston City and West Frankfurt and proceeded to shoot up the place, an event that was only fitting since Charlie Berger was co-owner of the joint. His partner was Roy Shaw, one of the men at Halfway the night Whitey Doring was killed. If the Sheltons were out for blood that afternoon, they were markedly unsuccessful. If, on the other hand, they sought to impress the citizenry with their war implements, their success was beyond measure. Following their exhibition, the Marion streets were noticeably lacking in pedestrians. Even the next night, very few attended the Orpheum Theater. It was usually packed. On Jordan's Curve, east of Shady Rest, one of the factions set up a roadblock. Flashlights scanned each suspicious vehicle for members of the other side. Of particular interest to the gangsters was an ambulance that was reported to be traveling toward Marion. Since they believed that a situation similar to the one involving Pat Pulliam was about to unfold, the men conducted a thorough search but found nothing. Because of the location, it is generally assumed that the Burger Gang was responsible for the roadblock. Among those inconvenienced by this outrage was the blonde bombshell, who was on her way to work at Shady Rest. Her driver was so frightened that he refused to drive further and be scrutinized. As a result, she had to walk the rest of the way over a plowed field. Meanwhile, back in Marion, the owner of a small coffee shop located near the jail was warned by officials to close early, the rumor being that certain of the Shelton gang had been sleeping in the jail. Poised for the first confirmation of that rumor were three carloads of burger gangsters who were parked near the jail and who waited there without success for most of the night. Burger's own war machine took shape in Uncle Tom Kane's repair shop, located at 509 South Granger in Harrisburg. The car, a Lincoln, was stripped down to the chassis, and the upper part of the frame was armor-plated. No one, not even the most goggle-eyed child of twelve, was more interested in Uncle Tom Kane's progress than three of the gang, all of whom were heroes to the youngsters gathered around. Almost every day, Freddie Wooten and Art Newman stopped by to check on the progress. Often they were accompanied by an uncommonly handsome fellow they called Connie. Connie Ritter came from Orient, a Franklin County coal town where his mother and sister ran a store and where his good looks and dancing ability wowed the girls, much to the chagrin of the local fellows. In the miners' hall, he sometimes played the piano and sang Jada Jada Jing Jing Jing. In a word, he was gregarious, the sort of friendly fellow that fellow Mason Arlie O. Boswell could appreciate and understand. The two up-and-coming young men had become friends during the time that Ritter ran a shoe store in Marion. 
After he went broke, he told Boswell that Charlie Berger had offered him the job as business manager for the Berger operation, a position that was not dangerous in the least, the gang leader had assured him. As one of the elite, he would be removed from the sordid details, such as midnight raids and flying bullets, but near at hand to the wine, women, and song that the Shady Rest environment so amply provided. The sales pitch had won him over, Yet here he was in Harrisburg rubbing shoulders with two quite discernible gangsters, while anxiously awaiting the completion of an armor-plated car. Had he blinked and missed something? Connie Ritter came from good stock, but he had this one problem. He was an absolute bonehead. The pledge that Kane and other Harrisburg residents found so heartening came in a message of burgers that was read over radio station WEBQ, we entertain beyond question, Harrisburg, during the height of the gang war. Later, it appeared in the Daily Register and read in part, The break between the Burger and Shelton factions came a few weeks ago when Charlie Burger would not permit his friends in Harrisburg to be robbed by members of the Shelton gang. He appeared in time to stop a holdup and robbery, and that was the start of the breach between the two factions. This breach became more bitter as the days passed on, and until now it has reached the stage where a meeting of the two gangs means a death battle. The breach was made the more severe last week when Mr. and Mrs. Art Newman of East St. Louis, who were the guests of Mr. and Mrs. Burger, were fired upon by the enemy gang. In the shooting, Mrs. Newman was slightly injured, but is now recovering. A big payroll robbery and several other robberies planned to have been staged in Harrisburg during the past two years have been prevented by Burger. People on the highway ways are in no danger because a gangster's bullet in this instance will be aimed at an enemy gangster. In this announcement meant to pacify the public, Berger failed to mention that he and his cohorts sometimes robbed poker games in nearby towns. One night, Freddie Wooten, Art Newman, Berger, and two others decided to hold up a game in West Frankfurt. Because one of the gang had once lived there, he was handed a machine gun and told to guard the cars. That same night, Following their successful haul in West Frankfurt proper, the men held up another poker game, this one out toward Orient 2 Mine. This time, the man from West Frankfurt was told to guard the door and to let no one escape. When a woman tried to make her exit, he grabbed her money before shoving her back inside. On some of their forays, they may have stolen slot machines. At least, Charlie's neighbor Delbert Balabus was surprised to see slots stacked in Burger's kitchen after Charlie had invited him over to do some work. Using one of his best drills, Balabus proceeded to bore out each of the locks until the coins came pouring out. Burger dumped the proceeds in a heap on the kitchen table. As his neighbor was about to leave, drill in hand, the affable Burger scooped up a handful of coins as payment for the labor. Later, Balabus discovered he had made two cents less than five dollars, a princely sum for a half-hour's work. To adequately protect Harrisburg, his home and where he was educating his children, Berger claimed he needed an armored car, something imposing enough to plant fear in the hearts of hardened criminals and efficient enough to back it up with bullets. In time, this piece of unwieldy armament would be abandoned, but for now, as the Sheltons had impressed the citizenry of Marion, so Berger felt bound to display his might to the folks at Harrisburg. One ex-gang member recalled riding on top, machine gun in lap, as the mighty car toured the square. They wanted to impress the law, he said, and no doubt they did. As broadcast over the radio and carried in print, 
Berger's assurance that his neighbors could rest easy under his protecting arm did nothing, of course, for the unfortunate many who found themselves outside the city limits. And for those who operated outside the law, he had another quite ominous message, one conveyed by his underlings or sent humming across telephone wires. All bootleg joints were to be closed for the duration of the war. It seems Berger believed that the various roadhouses scattered through Williamson County and elsewhere in southern Illinois made ideal fortresses for Shelton gunmen. Perhaps so, but his almost comic opera attempt to inject a semblance of fair play into the deadly and quite ugly free-for-all was earmarked for failure. One roadhouse operator who thought and said so was Joe Adams. Despite his 280 pounds, Adams was anything but lethargic, being also a Stutz dealer in West City, and, not least, the mayor of that Benton suburb, long noted for its defiance of the Volstead Act. The town was ridden with bootleggers and dicemen, with the passing of Noble Weaver, leader of the Franklin County underworld. The booze vendors did as they pleased, and Joe Adams was no exception. Having his brother Gus for neighbor and ally, Joe felt capable of defying Berger or anyone else who attempted to impose restrictions. It is known that the personable Gus did at first try to dissuade his brother from getting deeply involved in the gang war, which was really a blood feud not so different from the vendettas that plagued the hills and hollows of Kentucky and West Virginia in times past. Now it was too late for cool reason. While their friendship with the Sheltons contributed to this cocksure attitude, at least on Joe's part, it also automatically assured them of Berger's enmity. Joe's bullheadedness made their position even more untenable. Take a moment to pity Joe Adams. Many years earlier, his father, Jack Adams, had his heart set on shooting the young man his daughter was determined to marry. To save the bridegroom on his wedding day, Joe shot and killed his own father. Gus would have nothing to do with his brother for years, and only with a growing conflict did Gus and Joe reconcile. One day, T. Mills Moore saw Joe Adams standing at the Benton Square and asked what he was doing. I'm just standing here, replied the mayor of West City. He then threw back his coat to reveal a machine gun. Joe did have sense enough to realize that despite Berger, was to invite trouble. Accordingly, he sent an invitation to the Sheltons down at Heron to move their operation to West City, where men of their cunning were appreciated and where Marshal McCormick could no longer harass them. Adams was, after all, the nearest thing to a wheel that the little town had, he was not reluctant to add. With enough men and guns at their disposal, they could drive that Russian Jew Charlie Berger into the earth where he belonged. Sweet words, these, to Carl and Earl and Bernie Shelton, to Ray Walker, and to Monroe Blackie Arms. Tradition has it that the Sheltons brought with them their famous steel tank, and that they left it in Joe Adams' garage for repairs. Another account states that the tank was merely dumped in a field nearby, an indication that it too had contributed more to showmanship than to actual battle. Whatever the tank's contribution to the chaos of the moment, its very presence in West City made Berger furious. That it was reportedly sitting in Joe Adams' garage sent him into a murderous rage. He called up Joe and stated his case, Get me that tank, or be killed. Joe refused to comply with this simple demand. During the autumn of 1926, 
The overweight mayor and the gangster, described by W.A.S. Douglas as bearing a strong resemblance to Tom Mix in his younger days, enjoyed several telephone conversations that were notable for impolite dialogue. Art Newman, the unlikely and often untrustworthy chronicler of gangland goings-on, recalled these chats during an interview with a reporter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Why don't you come out of that cornfield and fight? You lousy fathead, why don't you leave that garage of yours and come to my cornfield and do your fighting here? As leaves brightened to yellow and red, and nights turned cool, the curious business of staying alive was much on the minds of Berger and his men. To guarantee their continued existence, they needed more machine guns. On the advice of Honest John Renfro, a former resident of Hardin County, a carload of the gangsters drove to Rosa Claire on Saturday night, October 16th, for the purpose of stealing the machine guns that were kept in the office of the Rosa Claire Spar Mining Company. At the outskirts of town, they asked directions of Joe Herford, who, along with his wife Edith, was on his way to town to attend a movie. Because the men were well-dressed, very polite, and driving a car much finer than his own Model T, Herford assumed they were mine officials, and volunteered to guide them to the mine. Inside, the men tore the wires loose from the engine room and ordered the guard, Ed Smith, to lead the way to the guns stored in the main office. Smith hesitated, saying that the place was locked. With some prompting, he managed to locate the keys. Soon, the guns were in the hands of the gangsters and traveling north. The week of October 17th was one of relative calm, despite this valuable addition to the gang's arsenal. But on October 25th, Berger and his men felt compelled to visit Joe Adams and demand that he turn over to them the celebrated tank belonging to the Sheltons. That visit, later to be recalled in a courtroom, was closely followed by two murders. Early in the morning of October 26th, the upright body of William Burnett High Pockets McQuay was found on a dirt road about three miles east of Heron. The frost-covered car in which he was sitting was bullet-pocked, as was High Pockets. Local residents reported hearing the unmistakable rattle of machine gun fire, but decided not to investigate until the following day. A member of the Burger Gang, High Pockets McQuay, was said to be on his way from his West Frankfurt residence to visit his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Orville McQuay in Heron, when he was overtaken. A few months later, Art Newman laid the blame on the Sheltons, recalling how they had pursued the young man and his girlfriend from the Hippodrome at Heron, and how High was informed by his girl's brother, himself a Shelton crony, that the gang was still on his trail. Leaving the girl at her home, McQuay once again took to the road, but three miles east of town, his luck ran out. So said Newman. The murder was never solved. Nor does it appear that the authorities made any great effort to determine the killer's identities. Within the Burger Gang, however, it was thought that Connie Ritter and Fred Butch Thomason had done the shooting. A former member of the gang wrote, I do not know for sure who killed High Pockets McQuay. It was rumored, however, that the killers were Fred Butch Thomason and Connie Ritter. In hearing them at one time discussing the murder of Lyle Shagworsham, they mentioned the demise of High Pockets, inferring that it was they who had wiped him out. That Burger gang members had indeed killed McQuay at Burger's behest is buttressed by an entry in Alphaeus Gustin's diary, dated October 1st, 1927. Mrs. Ray Shamsky, nephew, Mrs. Chaz Burger, up am after insurance policy to McQuay, papers delivered to Ray Shamsky. 
Later in the day, a young black man named Alvin Woods, the same Alvin Woods who often entertained with his saxophone at Shady Rest, discovered a hand protruding from the water that flowed beneath a bridge east of Equality in Gallatin County. The body in the North Fork of the Saline River was thought to be that of Ward Casey Jones, a machine gun man for the Burger crowd. Charlie Burger, Art Newman, and Connie Ritter, and possibly Freddie Wooten, drove to Equality later that day, ostensibly to determine if the Sheltons had killed their pal Casey. To the youngsters looking on, the well-dressed gangsters emerging from their fine car presented quite a sight. Newman and Ritter were of special interest because of their machine guns. Berger instructed The Undertaker, A.K. Moore, to give their fallen comrade a splendid funeral, complete with flowers and frills at his expense. He also invited Moore and Sam Bunker, a local businessman, to accompany the gang to Shawneetown, where they planned to swear out a warrant against those who had so brutally murdered poor Casey. The county judge refused to act. Later, Connie Ritter would be successful in getting Judge W.T. Smith to issue warrants against Gus Adams and two other men, but the charges proved groundless. Returning to Equality empty-handed, Berger saw what he at first thought was a car with only one headlight parked off the highway just west of Junction, but it turned out to be a motorcycle. I told you that son of a bitch was following us, the gang leader said, adding as the others brought forth their machine guns, We ought to go right back and kill the son of a bitch now. In all the excitement, they forgot to tell Bunker and Moore who the motorcyclist was or why he was following them. Ward Casey Jones was buried in Moore's own plot in a cemetery in Equality. The Undertaker's son, Ted, wore the dead man's bullet-holed leather jacket to school for some time, to the envy and delight of his classmates. Next time. Driving east past Shady Rest, we saw some men with guns in front of Shady Rest close to the building. As we passed by both ways, they dropped to their knees and followed our car with their guns pointed. Cold. Cold.